for somebody like me who studies the brain, uh, or the brain and the mind are one, not just to say, oh, you know, we don't have an experience of something like our minds that make us special, that make us individual. But for me, they really go together. You're listening to the Beyond Disciplines podcast, produced by the Faculty of Arts and Science at Concordia University in Montreal. Beyond Disciplines is a conversation series that brings scholars together from across different fields of knowledge. I'm Aaron Lakoff. And I'm Simone Lucas. Beyond Disciplines. Mix it up, experiment boldly, and go beyond. Close your eyes. What are you thinking? Maybe you're wondering if it's too late to have another coffee or worrying about your next deadline. Maybe you're hung up on a heartbreak and replaying memories again and again. What are you thinking? Does the thought have a color or a smell? Can you find it somewhere in your body? Maybe it's ballooning in your stomach, digging into your shoulders, or tingling at your fingertips. Now move around, take a walk. Give yourself a shake. Do your hips have something to say? Can you write a word with your eyebrow or a sentence with your knees? Can you tell a story with your body? In this episode of Beyond Disciplines, we'll hear from four scholars who challenge the division between mind and body. Is our consciousness really invisible or can we see it? Is our body just a physical being we need to take care of? Or do our bodies have thoughts too? We begin the episode with Christophe Krova. We talk to him about ways of visualizing the brain's activity. Vero Leduc tells us about her comic book written in sign language. Jeff Dover explains why we should pay attention to the emotional aspects of chronic pain. And Virginia Penyun brings us inside our heads to look at the plasticity of brains. Settle in and stay tuned. The first thing you see when entering Concordia's Perform Center is an exercise room. Underneath this regular-looking gym, there's a network of labs doing cutting-edge research on health. Christophe Grova gave us a tour of the center. Are these exercise rooms, are they also, do they work as a lab at the same time? Yeah, more or less, yeah, there are experiments done on that. There are some training sessions that are that are done uh, and you have um, like every like it's like a gym so you can do your membership and do your exercise but your, your program can be followed and you have a kind of small usb key. so my name is uh, uh, christophe grova i am um, assistant professor here in physics and i am a researcher here at perform center and most of my work is to combine different kinds of techniques to image the brain. What in your experiences as an academic and researcher brought you specifically to this kind of research and to researching epilepsy? So what is quite interesting in epilepsy is that usually this combination from different modalities. So you try to explore the same process with different techniques. So I try to become 
more or less an expert in some of those techniques to try to analyze them and to combine them as best as possible. And epilepsy is a very nice example to do that. But there are other aspects where we can also do that. And actually, that's what brought me here at Perform because of this broad way to investigate different aspects of brain functions together with other things. Uh, we were mentioning a bit physical exercise. I've been mentioning sleep. So these are very nice ap uh, possible application fields where combining different modalities is of great interest. And now we're standing in front of an EEG uh, measuring machine. <laughs> Could you try describing it visually for the listeners who can't see, of course, where we are, okay. and also imagining uh, like that your grandmother and your nephew are listening to the podcast and you're trying to really <laughs> explain to them what this machine does and what okay. kind of signals it's measuring? Okay, so that machine looks like... Um, it's a net made with lots of small dots, which are dots where we're going to measure the electricity made out of your brain, what I'm calling bioelectrical activity. Yeah? You have neurons. When neurons are working, they generate electricity. We are measuring that. And we want to measure that all over the place, all over your head. So to do that, an EEG machine is a set of what we call electrodes that are picking up. And you need a a good contact, an electrical contact with the skin. So that system, it's a full net and on every electrode there is a sponge. And so we try to have this sponge getting wet in a saline solution first, and then we can measure bioelectrical activity in different conditions. So either we do a specific test, a visual task, a memory task, and we measure the brain activity the second part of my research is when we analyze that, is to transform those measurements based on the scalp into 3D images of the brain. And we just, we just went through a, a tour of the Perform Center. Could you tell us a bit more about the Perform Center and how, in your experience, it's been unique as a, a place to do research? Like, uh, what's really original and unique about Perform is that you will see, you will find everything under the same roof. Uh, so you, s you see our different platforms. Uh, you have the conditioning platforms where you can do physical exercise, the metabolic kitchen, you will see the cardiopulmonary suit, so and the all imaging suit, the sleep lab. So but we are all on the same place. So as opposed to other centers where you would do your physical exercise at one place and then you have to go that way to do the, the imaging. So what's really interesting here, it offers unique opportunity to develop new research projects that are combining all these at the same place because we can record everything, we can combine everything. And, uh, and we can do that really in, a, in the context of prevention of health. What good health means in terms of the way your brain works and how we can do some prevention of some pathology by further understanding what good health means. Our mind seems totally mysterious to most of us, but scientists like Christophe are able to see its inner workings. He can read the brain's waveforms Looking into the mind helps us to understand it better and develop new medical treatments. 
Most languages of the world have a written as well as a spoken form. When Véro Le Duc realized she didn't know how to write down her own language, LSQ, or Quebec Sign Language, she became determined to create a new form of writing. I'm Véro Le Duc. Um, I'm working as a postdoctoral fellow, a reason postdoctoral fellow at uh, Concordia. I'm uh, responsible for the critical disability access at the CDMC, Community and Differential Mobilities Cluster, that is uh, held in Milieu Institute for Art, Culture and Technology. You made a film called Falling on Deaf Ears. Could you describe us some of the life experience or your experiences as an academic that led you to create this film? So my uh, PhD studies was in communication, so I did uh, research creation, and I was particularly interested in doing a graphic novel accessible in sign language. Uh, but rather than created a um, graphic novel in French and then translated to sign language, I've decided to create it literally. But then I, I was wondering how we can write a, a sign language that is a three-dimensional three language. So um, I've done some research and find that there is sign language uh, writing system, but uh, none of them are used in Quebec here. So uh, through my research, I came to videography as a way of writing sign language. So that's, wha- that's how I came to uh, um, create this um, a new form of media. The graphic novel called it's called it's fair in the deaf here, and I've met with uh, different deaf people and hearing people discussing about different issues. So it's a documentary uh, graphic novel that is accessible on the internet. And could you talk to me about what you see as the importance of writing sign language and ho- how you see that as important to the deaf communities that you're a part of? The French philosopher um, Jacques Derrida said that um, writing is the a condition for epistemy, which means that to uh, develop knowledge, to construct knowledge, to organize knowledge, we need to leave trace of, uh, of this knowledge. So um, writing in uh, typography was one, is one way of writing. But for sign language, uh, videography, it's much more um, fit to this uh, three-dimensional um, language. So um, that's why I was uh, really animated by the question of uh, the importance for knowledge, which in a Freakadian perspective, it's much related to question of power. So um, um, particularly, I was interested in how to give a voice if I can use this expression, to deaf people. But when we uh, take a closer look to all this uh, language of social recognition, speaking up, um, standing, um, like uh, expressing just as uh, making our voice being heard, speak, speaking out, um, all these expressions are much more, much uh, funner centrist. So, um, when social consideration is not um, arriving, so then we, we can see a lot of odds um, expression, such as it's fell on a deaf here or government is having a deaf dialogue or s- uh, thing like that. So, but the question was not only to find a synonym to deaf voice, but also to realize how in uh, deaf history, voice is a synonym also for oppression as um, 
So not many people know that in 1881, uh, sign language uh, education was uh, prohibited. So um, it was the beginning of what we call oralism. And so deaf people were forced to learn to speak instead of many different other uh, learnings. And so it's it's not since uh, that long time that uh, sign language is uh, beginning to be um, thought again. And so for me, it was really important to take uh, a reflection, to offer a reflection, a critical reflection on voice um, in this deaf perspective. So um, instead of uh, speaking out, people are making making a sign. I don't know the expression in English. In French, we say faire sing, which means like, uh, could you please listen to me or look at me or something like that. So as you know, the radio or podcast medium is an audio medium, so you might call it more phonocentrist, but I was wondering if you could describe visually the video to podcast li- listeners, so, since they can't be looking at, at it while they're listening or looking at the sign interpretation of this. Um, personally, I'm a big fan of a black and white graphic novel or a film, so I use this uh, aesthetic for my graphic novel also. So. Um, We've done the interview in a um, a video studio with a green wall, so that allows me to remove it after uh, doing video editing to replace this background by um, Photoshop editing of images. And those images were um, inspired by the real um, place where the interview has taken form. the, uh, all the um, characters have an uh, aesthetic of a uh, graphic novel also, have used After Effects uh, and, and uh, done a lot of experimentation to find an uh, aesthetic that I find it interesting. So it's, um, yeah, it's a suggest uh, aesthetic of a uh, graphic novel with um, a speech bubble with um, the text. What is interesting is uh, as I've met with deaf people and hearing people from my family, uh, there's all the question of translation. So from for the deaf people I've met, the interview were done in this um, in uh, this um, green wall studio and originally in Quebec Sign Language, LSQ, La Langue des Saints Québécois. And so, and then I've, I've done a translation in French, so the speech bubble or the translation in French and the original text is the uh, signing bodies of the deaf uh, characters. But for members of my hearing family, we've done the interview um, in French, have a, a rec- video recording it, and then ask a, a hearing colleague to make a verbatim. He translated, uh, he write, write down the text in French. And after I've done a translation to LSQ, but then I've, I've, I, I need bodies <laughs> to uh, uh, um, to interpret this um, this text. So I have I, uh, deaf actors to uh, perform the translation in uh, Quebec Sign Language. So uh, characters th- that are performing hearing member of my family are the translating translated bodies of the text. And in the speech bubble, you have the original text from the interview. Bodies write stories in Vero's comic book. Her project makes a mark on our media landscape. It inspires us to create media that is accessible to deaf and hearing people. We've posted a link to Vero's project in the show notes. Check it out. (laughs) 
The main reason why 50% of people in the U.S. go to see their doctors is because of pain. The numbers are similar in Canada. How should doctors address the psychological aspects of pain? We sat down with Jeff Dover, who gave us some answers. So could you begin by introducing yourself and the work you do at Concordia? Sure. My name is Dr. Jeff Dover. I'm an associate professor in the Department of Exercise Science. I teach in the athletic therapy program uh, in our department, and I also study pain, why some people feel more pain than others, and how that increased pain affects recovery and function. Tell me more about pain. What brought you to this topic of research, either professional experiences or personal experiences? Sure. Well, I was, I'm a certified athletic therapist, so I was a clinician before I got into academia. And one of my first experiences that made me think about pain was when I was working at a sports camp called Olympia, which is in the middle of nowhere, Ontario. And we had a basketball player fall down on an outstretched hand, and they had a Coley's fracture, which was like a wrist fracture. And he wasn't in that much pain. Uh, he just kind of sat there, and uh, he was really disjointed with the, the wrist joint. It was an obvious deformity. And, uh, you know, I asked him if he was okay, and he said yes. And I said, this looks like it's broken. He said, okay, and he was very calm, and we had to send him to the hospital to get x-rays. But we got I had one of the counselors drive him in because, you know, didn't seem like it was a big deal. And then next week, uh, we had almost the identical thing. It was another male basketball player falling an outstretched hand, had a Coley's fracture. It looked identical in terms of the wrist joint and the deformity. And he was in a lot of pain. And he was rolling around and screaming. And it was in, um, you know, a lot of pain and, and going into shock. And we had to call an ambulance. Uh, and I was really surprised because it was sort of the same injury. Uh, looked identical, and it, but two significantly different responses. And I was like, how is it possible for these two people to have like the same thing, but feel so much difference in pain? And that was one of the things, first things that got me interested in trying to understand why we've, you know, why some people feel more pain than others, really. And so, and now that's developed into, I look at athletes uh, who are experiencing pain with rehab and barriers to rehabilitation. And then I also look at um, regular population, like people with chronic pain and why they feel so much pain and what we can do to, to fix it. Through your research, what have you found to be some of the links between the psychological response to pain and the experience of pain itself? Sure. So one of the things we use a lot is a, what's called a biopsychosocial model of pain. It was something that was developed in the late 80s um, to explain why some people develop chronic pain and others do not. Um, and so there's a few things we can measure just with questionnaires in terms of how people interpret their pain. Uh, one of them's catastrophizing and one of them's kinesophobia. And these are some things we measure in people and to see if that's causing a barrier for their rehabilitation. And if it is, then it's something we try to address clinically to try and reduce it so that they can get over the psychological barrier, which then translates into them getting better clinically uh, with their pain. So those are some of the things we do now. And when you say catastrophizing, could you explain what that means? What's going through that person's sure. mind? Sure. That was um, uh, it was a, that was the pain catastrophizing scale was something that was developed in the mid '90s by Dr. Mick Sullivan, who was a professor at McGill actually, and uh, it's a way of quantifying uh, how much someone catastrophizes a painful experience. There's different subscales of the scale, but essentially, it's how much they 
magnify or ruminate over a potential painful experience like needles or getting their fingers stuck in a door or something like that. And it's a way of they interpret it as a more elevated painful response um, to, you know, a condition that maybe someone else wouldn't. And then back out. Look out, Kreider speed. Kreider able to poke it on through, right around in front. Oh, and he goes careening into Price. And the net is dislodged, and Price is down. What a burst of speed by Chris Kreider. He hurt the right knee. Watch the right knee. It's the right knee he reaches for. So going back to that idea of mind over matter, that's something that we hear a lot in the sports world. Mm -hmm. But you're looking at the relationship of mind and matter. How do you think um, Mm -hmm. the sports community could benefit from seeing this connection Mm -hmm. between mind and body? Right. So the mind over matter, we hear that in the sports or uh, athletic, well, like in a training idea, right? So when you're working out and if you're trying to improve your muscle mass or VO2 capacity, then... It can be, you know, painful or it can be challenging uh, to do that. And, and that's okay. Like that, that's a, that's a different feeling. Um, when people suffer an injury and they're experiencing pain, uh, more pain than they need to or, more, or that pain is providing a barrier to their rehabilitation, then that's something we want to fix. So someone, um, people often think that athletes might have uh, are better with pain than the regular population, and some of them are, and some of them aren't. Uh, they, they, uh, some people of uh, some athletes ex- uh, struggle with pain and injury as well. Um, uh, it can be due to the sport plays a different role in their life than the regular population, and uh, an importance for them. It could be a source of living if they're a professional athlete, and so uh, they'll experience some psychological barriers to rehabilitation too. So we want to work on those to try and get an athlete back as quickly as can, safely as possible uh, from an injury if they have anything that's, that's stopping them. Great. So to finish off, can you talk a bit more about how you help people in a clinical setting overcome these psychological barriers and how mm. you hope to see your research being applied in a clinical setting? Sure. Well, they had, um, there's a couple different ways we do it. Uh, one way is giving them space to talk about it and what the, what pain is stopping them from doing and how it affects their life. Um, that's important. It's important to come up with achievable goals. So sometimes they'll come in with the wish that uh, to be pain-free, and that might not be possible, but they, in terms of like playing with their kids again or, um, you know, bathing themselves, like that, that is something we could achieve. So that's important. We also do some uh, graded return to activity. So instead of going from uh, sedentary or not being able to do anything and then being able to, you know, run around the block, we have many steps along the way, you know, and, and, and we can take as much time as we need with each step and to, when they feel comfortable. So the graded level of activity really helps too. Um, but, uh, you know, and it, another one is... Uh, is hope. <laughs> you know, a lot of times we, we see people with, have seen multiple clinicians, they've had many visits with many people, and they don't, they feel pretty down about their chances of getting better. And so, um, you know, gaining that trust and having someone believe that they, that things could turn around, that's one of the hardest things that, that, we, that we work on. Fluff does with an impression that he listens to his patients. 
He takes in the physical and emotional catastrophes pain creates in their lives. His approach involves both body and mind in the long process of healing. Imagine you were at a recital. A virtuoso pianist is accompanying a legendary dancer. If you could look inside the heads of these two artists, would their brains look the same? Virginia Penhune explains. So I'm a faculty member in the Department of Psychology, and my lab is the Laboratory for Motor Learning and Neuroplasticity. So what we look at is how the brain changes uh, when we learn new skills. So those skills could be something pretty basic, uh, but it could also be something uh, much more complex and exciting, like learning to play a musical instrument, uh, learning to dance. And we also look at long-term changes. So in other words, if you're uh, a trained musician or an expert musician, an expert dancer, how does the brain change after all of that long-term training? And what in your experiences, either as an academic or just as a person, brought you to this field of research on dance and brain plasticity? I started out being really interested in uh, musical rhythm. So how uh, timing uh, of sounds is really important for performance. And that led me to wanting to know more about movement because movement timing is really crucial in music. And then we started to, we did studies on musicians and we wanted to really broaden it and look at other kinds of people who use sound uh, to uh, make movement or use sound to create uh, movement. So we wanted to look at dancers. And could you describe now the experiment itself? So what we wanted to know was if you are a trained musician or if you're a trained dancer, what does that training change in your brain? So we took people who had uh, over 10 years of training in either dance or in music, but who didn't have training in the other area. So in other words, musicians who weren't dancers, dancers who didn't play musical instruments. And we looked at the brains, we compared them to see what changes when you have dance training versus what changes when you have music training. And what we saw was uh, that dancers have changes in a whole bunch of regions of the brain that connect auditory, motor, visual, visual spatial regions. Whereas the trained musicians also have changes, but they're much more specific. They're about uh, changes in regions that might be related to just like moving your fingers, moving your mouth. So more specific changes for musicians and much broader changes for dancers. I think one thing that was surprising is that we actually found that uh, there was a lot of overlap in the brain changes between the musicians and the non-musicians. So they both showed changes in auditory regions, which is maybe not surprising because both people, musicians, are producing sound. They need to be really attuned to sound. Dancers aren't making sounds necessarily, or that's not like mostly what they're doing. They're following sounds, 
but both groups showed enhancements in their auditory regions. What really differed were the motor regions. So more specific, like uh, regions that were related to like hand and finger movements for the musicians and broader changes for the dancers. So probably related to the fact that they moved their arms, their legs, their feet, their whole bodies. Did doing this research change in any way for you, your perception of the relationship between the mind and, and the body? For somebody like me who studies the brain, uh, the mind or the brain and uh, or the brain and the mind are one, right? Not in not just to say, oh, you know, we don't have an experience of something like our minds that make us special, that make us individual. But for me, they really go together. So one of the things that's exciting is to be able to take something super complex, something really creative like dance or music, and actually look down at the brain origins of it. And just to end off for fun, um, since your research is on music and dance, do you have a favorite song to dance to? Oh, well, I am a huge fan of uh, funk and soul. Uh, so anything by Aretha Franklin will get me moving uh, or really any kind of great 60s soul. In fact, I'm actually working on some studies right now uh, on musical groove. So we define groove, you know, being psychologists, we have to give like a definition. We define groove as wanting to move, like a really pleasurable desire to move. So when you hear that great song that you love to dance to, it's that feeling that you just have to get out of your chair and dance. So we're actually doing some studies trying to look at why we get pleasure uh, from this kind of groovy, syncopated music. So anything, like I said, anything funk and soul is my fave. That's amazing. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks. The way we play sports, dance, or make music can be traced back to intricate connections inside our heads. Over time, we can switch up these links as we dance to new tunes. Our minds are physical, our bodies have their own language. Synaptic brain activity can leave traces on a screen. Bodies can write books. Physical pain asks to be understood in all its forms. And the skills we learn can fundamentally change our brain structure. The mind and body are interconnected. Thanks again for listening to the Beyond Disciplines podcast, supported by the Faculty of Arts and Science at Concordia University in Montreal. This episode was produced by Aaron Lakoff and Simone Lucas. Thank you to all our guests, Christophe Grova, Ferro Leduc, Jeff Dover, and Virginia Penhune. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. When you're there, leave us a rating or a review. It helps other people find the podcast questions or comments, email us at beyonddisciplines at gmail.com. Also, be sure to check out the next event in the Beyond Disciplines series, Science Odyssey Presents, Science Fiction, and Science Facts. Can humans possess superpowers? Does mind control really exist? 
What's behind the forensic technology of CSI? Come find answers to all these questions and participate in the discussion. That's on Tuesday, May 16th from 5 to 7 p.m. Find all the details on the Beyond Disciplines website. The link is in the show notes. See you next time.